My mom's the bomb. Sounds like it should go in a Dr. Seuss book or something, right? Uh, I, I just want it to be stated for the record, though, that a gazillionaire is a, a radical underestimation of what a mom is worth, all right? Let's not, let's not kid ourselves. I, I wouldn't know a gazillion dollars if I had it, but it, it isn't anywhere adequate for what a mom is, is really worth. Well, this morning, uh, I just want to thank God for the moms in this room. Uh, it is really a joy and a, a privilege to see, uh, even represented up here on the stage this morning, the fruits of so many of your, your labors. And you play such a pivotal role. I, I think it's worth just at the start here acknowledging that as you are some of the, the main gospel proclaimers in the lives of your kids. At the same time, you disciple them, you invest in them. Praise God for you. Praise God for you. Abraham Lincoln, arguably one of our greatest presidents, said this about his mom. He said, I remember my mother's prayers, and they've always followed me. They've clung to me all my life. What precious words from Abraham Lincoln. Mom, know that your prayers have an effect on your children. Uh, No greater gift could you give them than to pray over them every single day. And perhaps like 3 John, uh, you would say in your heart years from now, Or perhaps even today as you reflect back on years of being a mom, there's no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. Amen? Amen. Well, this morning we're in John chapter 10. And as you're turning there, uh, I just want to say a few things to moms uh, as we get started because this this passage isn't inherently a, a text about motherhood. Uh, Our message this morning, as you can imagine, isn't going to provide 10 steps to being a better mom. However, I believe the importance of God's word this morning is not without huge significance to mothers and children alike. Some here are in the midst of those most taxing years where you're investing countless hours of energy to point your children to Christ. Others, you've walked through motherhood and you've lived to tell about it. And oh, do we love to hear the stories, barefoot, snowy, uh, all those stories. We love it. For you, this may be a season of mentoring and uh, encouraging your children as they now become mothers themselves. The beauty of John chapter 10 is that it speaks clearly to us in a world and culture that is very confused about what it takes to be a great mom. For behind every godly mother stands the great shepherd Jesus. It's his voice that urges her on when strength is failing. It is his instruction that untangles the snarly problems of life that children often bring. It is his tender voice that brings peace to the raging storms that crash upon us. In short, the security and satisfaction necessary to pour selflessly into the lives of those who often complain, ignore, destroy, and minimize our loving counsel can only come by unwavering faith in Jesus. He alone is the anchor, the anchor that holds us fast as the tide of culture seeks to drag us away from the truth of God's design and plan. More than ever, future generations need to hear and see lived what it means to truly worship Jesus. Who better to show them than mothers? Church, pray for the mothers in this room that Christ might be exalted in their lives through the impactful role God has given them as moms. Fathers, may we present Christ to them as the all-sufficient source of grace, strength, wisdom, and truth. 
If you have your Bibles, uh, open with me to John chapter 10. And would you please stand with me out of honor for God and the reading of his word as we read John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21 together. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Thank you. May God be encouraged or blessed by the reading of his word. You may be seated. And let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Our great and awesome God, how majestic is your name. We've sung it this morning, and we have entrusted our lives to your care, asking that uh, the commitment of our hearts would be to know and follow you. Oh Lord, would you open our eyes to see the beauty of Christ again this morning? Would you open our ears to hear his voice, that we might follow wherever he would lead, and that we might delight and enjoy him now and forever? Oh, Lord, we ask that you would teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in a study of John's gospel, a study entitled Believing is Seeing. And we began in John chapter 20 with the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And it really is the central part of the story. Without the death and resurrection of Christ, there would be no connection to God. And John, in composing this letter, this gospel, tells us exactly what his purpose is. He's writing so that we might know that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. 
one foretold in the Old Testament, but now arrived, tabernacling the glory of God in human flesh. And he writes these things so that we might have life by believing in this Messiah. And so we flash back then to John chapter 2, where Jesus purifies the temple worship. And in so doing, he declares that the proof, the, the ID card of his authority was the death and resurrection. That though the leaders would destroy this temple, speaking of his body, he would raise it again in three days. And so worship, it's no longer founded in a structure, in a temple, but it's founded in a person, in Jesus himself. Then last week, we jumped ahead to John chapter 9, where we see this powerful image of God's gift of grace, where a blind man, one who had never seen the dawn of a new morning, had never experienced the change of colors, had never seen the beauty of harvest, was given sight. What a powerful picture of God's redeeming grace that takes us, blind men and women, and gives us sight. And this morning, we're going to see a continuation, really, of John chapter 9. It's a little unfortunate that the chapter division is here at chapter 10, verse 1. In the ancient manuscripts, there were no chapter divisions. This really is intended to be one continuous, ongoing story. Look at the end of chapter 9, verse 41. Jesus here is again talking to the religious leaders, these Pharisees and scribes who had denounced his work of healing had said, surely Jesus had sinned. And Jesus says to them in verse 41, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. This is a, a strong statement of, of condemnation. For these men claim to know God. They claim to know and be descendants and followers of Moses. And yet, as we saw last week, the darkness gets darker and the light gets brighter. For the religious leaders, they are decrying and, and going against what God is doing while this blind man who hadn't seen with his own eyes comes lighter and lighter and testifies more and more powerfully to God's power and redemptive work. So in John chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus yet again invites these religious leaders. He invites them to see and believe, to hear and follow. Will they do it? Will you do it? That's the question before us this morning. Who is God's Messiah? You see, this is the classic stumbling block that these religious leaders are confronted with. They had certain expectations. They had a, a perception of what God's Messiah was to do and to be. And yet, Jesus has arrived on the scene and he's very, very different than their expectations. So as we saw last week, Jesus would declare, I am the light of the world. This powerful reference, again, hearkening back to Genesis chapter 1, where Jesus is actively involved in the creation of all that we know, all that we see. And he declares, I'm the light of the world. And Helen Keller had it right. She said, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight and no vision. How true that is for us, is it not? that oftentimes we have sight, we see all that God has made, and yet we worship the created thing rather than the creator. 
And so here as we continue in John chapter 10, remember last week we talked about this conflict that's escalating, it's, it's boiling, the pot is bubbling, and we're seeing that the pot is soon to boil over, kind of like that mac and cheese when you're making it for your kids and you get distracted and suddenly onto the stove is that mess that's going to take an hour to clean off and leave a, a nasty, greasy smell. That's what's happening here in John chapter 10. And remember that conflict, you know, the little bubbles on the bottom of the pan, they started in John chapter 5. And so keep your finger in John chapter 10, but flip back with me to John chapter 5 because last week we talked about the references to sight in terms of faith. This week let's look at references to hearing and faith. And this one here in John chapter 5 is most interesting. Again, remember in John chapter 5, Jesus has healed a man with a withered hand, but he did it on the Sabbath. Rut-row, rut-row. The religious leaders, see, had this form, had this tradition, this fence that they had put around the law that said you cannot do a good work. You cannot do any work on the Sabbath. And so they are, the bubbles are starting to form. They are angry. But listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, sounds similar. Truly, truly, I say to you, here's the key, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Do you see the connection to to hearing? He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Now he's going to repeat again in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Guess what? We're going to talk about that next week. Because is there a dead man in John chapter 11, a man named Lazarus? who is dead and hears the voice of the Son of Man and lives? Oh yeah, we're going to get there next week. But I want you to see here, in the midst of this conflict, there are people who have ears but are not hearing. And Jesus says, if you are part of God's family, if you have relationship with God, you'll hear my voice and believe. Flash forward to John chapter 8. Remember, John chapter 8 is that point in this story where the conflict is now bubbling over. There's, there's no doubt about boiling water at this point. And again, listen to what Jesus says. In this confrontation about Abraham and, and these religious leaders saying, we belong to Abraham, we're his children. And Jesus says, oh really, if, if you were, you would have welcomed me. But he says in verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Now, notice verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Do you see the connection? God's children truly hear his voice. That's the point. And Jesus is saying your rebellion, your rejection of my message is ultimately a rejection of the Father because you're not part of his family. You see, we're confronted with the reality that only God can invite us into his family. Only God can make people who are blind see and people who are deaf hear. And yet central, central to believing is seeing. That was the message last week. And this week, we're going to see that central to believing is hearing. Hearing the voice of our great shepherd. This morning as well, we're confronted with the truth of eternal life. And that eternal life, unlike popular opinion, it isn't about the time that we will experience life. Everyone will spend eternity somewhere. Rather, instead of quantity of life, it is quality of life. 
that the Bible and Jesus directly here is offering us. Abundant life. What is the abundant life? We're going to be confronted with that as we see this story this morning. Now, as we step into to John chapter 10, here's the basic structure of how this chapter unfolds. First, there's imagery. And we need to wrap our minds in these opening six verses around the imagery that Jesus chooses to reveal himself, to show us yet again who he truly is. Then after that imagery, Jesus doesn't leave us wondering, how do we make sense of these figures? How do we make sense of this picture that he's painted for us? He interprets it in the following section of verses, in verses 7 through 18. And then lastly, there's implications. You see, this image, its interpretation, it leaves us with a choice. It confronts us with two paths. Will we choose the path of denial or will we choose the path of worship? So that's the basic flow in John chapter 10 here this morning. Let's look at the imagery. And what I'd like to do at the start here is step back and look at the Old Testament imagery behind this. You see, God graciously gathers his sheep. The Old Testament declares this time and time again. Now, if I were to ask you, and and feel free to say out loud, this is your one chance to talk this morning, uh, who is the, the image or person that comes to mind when you think of shepherd in the Old Testament? What character? David, right? David was this shepherd boy anointed to become God's shepherd king. And of course, he penned Psalm 23, which declares that the Lord is our shepherd. We love that psalm. It's a psalm of great comfort and hope, peace in the midst of trouble and trial. But there's more imagery than just David, this shepherd king, one whom God had made covenant promises in 2 Samuel 7 to. But you see in 2 Samuel 7, God told David that one of his descendants would be an eternal shepherd king. That one day a a man would come who would sit on the throne of David and rule forever. Jesus declares the coming of that day. But in Isaiah chapter 40, we read even more of what God intended to do with a shepherd king. For throughout Israel's history, she's plagued by leaders who selfishly use the power and authority entrusted to them by God for their own evil purposes. And oftentimes, these misled, misfed, used and abused sheep are left scattered, left hurting, lying in grave danger. And God has a message, a consistent message throughout the prophets for his people. And so in in Isaiah, this prophet's book, there are really three primary sections. Isaiah 1 through 39 is the commissioning of Isaiah to bring a message of judgment. Judgment upon the nations, but ultimately judgment upon Israel. And so even in his commission, Isaiah sees this heavenly throne where God is seated and he's told to go and and to proclaim this great and awesome God to the people. And yet what's the response? They're a people who have eyes but don't see. They have ears but they don't hear. And Isaiah says, how long, O Lord? How long will I be called to this ministry of apparent futility? Well, as the book unfolds, we come to chapter 40 and God's answer finally is comfort. Comfort my people. You see, there's a message of restoration that falls on the heels of a message of judgment. And in Isaiah chapter 40, as God begins a message of comfort, a a message of his restoring work, listen to what he says. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. 
Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. There's this shepherd imagery right there in the heart of God's promise of restoration. Jeremiah, prophesying sometime later in the, really the time period where Israel would go and face captivity, face uh, God's punishment for their rebellion, Jeremiah writes this, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you've scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds declares the Lord. But notice, here's, so there's judgment, judgment for these shepherds, these leaders who hadn't led according to God's design. They weren't mirroring him in their leadership. But notice his promise of restoration in verse three. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. And in the same portion where Jeremiah would give us these precious new covenant promises, promises of the Spirit of God who would take the law of God and write it on our hearts, again, we find this shepherd imagery. Hear the word of the Lord, he says in Jeremiah 31.10. O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. Friends, this is a dominant image in the Old Testament. Time and time again, God speaks a word of judgment, a word of condemnation upon the leadership who had failed to represent him in leading his people. And at the very same time, in the very same breath as it were, God declares a message of restoration and healing that he, as the good shepherd, will gather these hurt, broken sheep. But perhaps the clearest Old Testament example comes from Ezekiel 34. I referred to Ezekiel earlier where you have in Ezekiel this imagery of God departing, the glory of God departing from the temple and it marches out of the temple precincts up the Mount of Olives and gone and the people are left asking, has God's glory left forever? And we saw at the beginning of John's gospel that no, the glory of God has returned. It's tabernacling, it's tenting in the flesh of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man, now the glory of God has returned to Israel. But notice what Ezekiel in his prophecy says in chapter 34. Again, notice the, the judgment of the leaders and God's promise that he alone is the true shepherd. Ezekiel 34, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Woe, woe. But then in verse 11, listen to the restoring grace of God. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Oh, aren't we grateful for a gracious God 
who will seek after his lost and hurting sheep. That's the imagery. That's the backdrop to John chapter 10. And it isn't by accident that Jesus picks, of all the figures at his disposal, of all the analogies he could have used, he picks this one. It is a central one in the Old Testament storyline, and it's imperative for us to see that and recognize that in the claims that Jesus is making. Now, let's break it down more specifically in the context of John 10. There's really three characters here in the opening six verses. The first set of characters are these thieves and robbers. These are ones who really don't care for the sheep at all. The sheep are just a tool, a a pawn to get what they really want, which is their own gain, their own interest. Sound like Ezekiel 34? Should. So there are these thieves and robbers. Now there's also, and you can see it on the screen there, there's also a shepherd in in this sheep pen where the sheep would be housed. And this is a a picture of an ancient first century sheepfold, sheep pen. And they would gather and corral the sheep in and Typically, the shepherd would even lay in front of that opening. And and it would be the shepherd who served as the gate, protecting the sheep from animals and wolves and bears and lions and such, as well as from intruders, from these thieves and robbers who would seek to come over the wall and take sheep from the flock. Here, uh, we see that Jesus is describing the shepherd and sheep relationship. And so there are sheep within this there is a shepherd and there's a relationship in the voice you see this shepherd in the story his sheep know his voice I can remember uh, I went years ago I had studied evangelism explosion and this dates me a little bit this was back in the days of cassette tapes and so I would sit at Caterpillar and I would have in my headphones a cassette tape of the evangelism explosion gospel presentation because I was trying to learn it and kind of memorize it and so while I was doing CAD work I would listen to that and there was a man's voice that was on that cassette tape. And so sometime later, I went down to Fort Lauderdale for the training, and I walked into this church. It was a Presbyterian church down there in Fort Lauderdale where D. James Kennedy was the pastor, and he's the one that started EE. And and anyway, I I walk into this room, and I heard one voice. Can you guess which voice it was? It was the guy on that tape. And so I just kind of followed and meandered my way through this huge church, hearing the voice of a man I had heard on tape, but he was just talking, having normal conversation. Well, here Jesus says the sheep have a very similar relationship with the shepherd. They know, they recognize his voice. And parents, you know this from your kids. When you shout, Jimmy, come here, they respond. They know your voice, and usually with that tone, they know you mean business. Well, that's the picture here. These sheep, they aren't the smartest creatures that God has made, and yet there is a, a relationship. Jesus, it says, or the, excuse me, the shepherd, I jumped a, ahead of myself a little bit. The shepherd calls them, notice this, by name. This shepherd in the image here, in the analogy, is not merely one who generically has relationship with his sheep, but specifically by name calls them. All right. So those are the three characters. There's the thieves and robbers, there's the shepherd, and there's the sheep. Now let's move to the interpretation in verses 7 through 18. And here's the reality. Jesus declares that he is the promised provision and protection of God. That's what Jesus is declaring through this story. Look at verse 7. He says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. You see, by describing himself and declaring that he is the door, Jesus is saying, I am the only one who can provide safety and satisfaction. 
I'm the only one that can provide the protection and provision that you as sheep need. For those of us who are familiar with John's gospel, this should remind us of John 14, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Here, twice, Jesus declares, I am the gate. I am the only connecting point to God. The only way to be part of God's family is through me. Now notice in verse 8, Jesus declares that this is a change. This is a, a new development, a new revelation in God's unfolding plan. He says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. What does that mean? You see, the thieves and robbers were these Jewish religious leaders that when confronted with the reality of God's Messiah, said, we don't want a Messiah like that. We don't want one who heals blind people on the Sabbath. We don't want a leader who heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. That's not the kind of Messiah that we want. And so they reject Jesus. And yet they're trying to, to convince people not to follow Jesus, but to follow themselves. And this has been happening for some time. And Jesus says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. Because after all, they don't really care for the sheep. But Jesus says, I care for the sheep. In fact, if anyone enters by me, verse 9 says, he will be saved and will go in and out and find good pasture. Notice he goes on to say, I came that they have life and that they might have it abundantly. So here we see in this image the real picture of what abundant life really means. Our culture wants to present the abundant life and even some churches may present this abundant life as comfort, ease, material wealth, health, and prosperity. That's not the abundant life that Jesus is speaking of here by declaring that he is the gate. After all, the New Testament says, if anyone desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, he or she will be persecuted. The life, the abundant life that Jesus is describing here, contained in this image of sheep and shepherds, is that of protection, of security. So when Jesus would send out his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, and he would send them into some very difficult places, he would say, don't be afraid of the ones that can kill your body. Rather, be afraid of the one that has the power to destroy both body and soul and cast it into hell. See, what Jesus is saying is, they may take your life, but they can never take your soul. And so there is this eternal security that is a bedrock for us as we seek to live and follow Christ. Look at verses 28 and following. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. He's speaking of the sheep here. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. This is double insurance, friends. Christ holds his own sheep securely, safely in his resurrected body. He, he has risen from the grave, conquered sin and death, and he holds us in his hands. And then he says, the Father, his hands are over my hands so that no one can snatch you away. Our relationship with God, our position as part of his flock is safe, is secure. No one, Jesus says, can snatch that away. Oh, what awesome confidence we can have in our glorious Savior to serve as a, a, a shelter for us in the storms. 
So not only is Jesus our, our access, he is our security and satisfaction. And none are lost. Jesus then says, I am the good shepherd. He says it twice in verses 11 and then in verse 15. I am the good shepherd. Excuse me, verse 14. And he says, I laid down my life for the sheep. Notice this willing, sacrificial love that Jesus has for his sheep. Now at first blush, it might seem like that's foolish. Uh, why, Jesus, would you lay down your life? How can you protect the sheep by the giving of your life? And yet, Jesus we know through the gospel, has given his life as the ransom that our sin deserves so that the wrath of God fully satisfied in him would be forever done and that we could enjoy life and relationship with God now and forever. Oh, what an amazing sacrifice. And this isn't an accident. Look at verses 17 and 18. This didn't just randomly happen to Jesus. He wasn't caught off guard. No, he says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one took Jesus' life from him. He willingly laid it down for the joy set before him, enduring the cross and scorning its shame. Why did he do that? He did that, as verses 14 and 15 tell us, so that he could have sweet communion with us. Verse 14 says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Do you hear the, the intimate friendship and fellowship that the sheep have with the shepherd? And yet, in Matthew chapter 7, we see a group that comes to Jesus when he's describing a broad way and a, a narrow way, a, a way that leads to death and a way that leads to life. And they say, wait, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we do? Here's our resume. It looks impressive. It's awesome. And he says, depart from me. Depart from me. I never knew you. See, it's possible to know Jesus and not really know Jesus. Here, Jesus says, my sheep, they, they know me. They hear my voice. I'm reminded of our oldest child, Leah, when she was first born at, at OSF. Uh, I had heard and read that if you speak and we would talk to her in the womb quite often, that they recognize your voice. And I'll never forget that first day as we sat in the little incubator and she's got all the goop and things on her eyes and the little lamps on and there's all kinds of commotion. And I was just saying, oh, Leah, you're beautiful. Oh, Leah, you're so precious. And her little head turned and she tried to open her little eyes and look at her father's voice. And that picture has always stood with me in relation to Jesus and his sheep. In the midst of the chaos and all that was happening in that room, she heard her father's voice. Do we hear the voice of our great shepherd? One whose sacrificial love, whose security envelops us and who desires to know us deeply. Now there's a surprise here in this story. Not only is there uh, Jesus declaring he is the door, he is the only way to enter into relationship with God he is the shepherd. He is the one that God had foretold would come and would gather and unite Israel. But oh, there's a surprise for these religious leaders. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, I have other sheep that aren't of this fold. You see in this imagery, in this analogy, Israel is the flock. And yet, just as God had promised Abraham that he would not be the end of God's blessing, but that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, 
God here, through Jesus, has a plan for the nations. He has a plan for other sheep who are not of the fold of Israel. And notice Jesus says, I must. This is imperative. This is crucial. I must bring them also. Church, aren't you glad that God's fold didn't end with Israel? And yet through Israel, and namely through the true Israel, has reached you and me. That was a shocker to the audience here, these religious leaders who wanted no part of the Gentiles, wouldn't eat with the Gentiles, and yet Jesus says, I have other sheep. And yet, notice there's not going to be two flocks, but there's going to be one flock and one shepherd. In our world, it loves to tell us that uniformity is the key. Uniformity, friends, is not the key. Unity is the key. You see, these sheep are diverse. They're clearly not from the same fold. They're clearly different. And yet they're united as one flock under one shepherd. Oh, that the church of Jesus Christ would embrace that reality as we think about mission, mission to the world and mission in our community. Jesus interprets this figure, figure of a shepherd and sheep, of danger to the flock, and says, I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. Do you hear my voice? And that leads us then to the implications. And the implications are quite simple. Is there denial or is there devotion? Just like with the blind man, once again, these religious leaders are confronted. And notice the response in verses 19 through 21. Some said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? And yet others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? There's a division. And I love what C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. And listen carefully to this, because I think it sums up what many of us experience and see when we talk to others. C.S. Lewis writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let, not, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now that is a, that is a powerful statement. But let me tell you something, it is so very practical. I was on a plane this week headed to North Dakota, and as I'm sitting on that plane, the gentleman that sat down next to me had the book, The Shack, in his hands. And so it was great to engage him in a discussion about The Shack. And the sadness in my heart is that this man wanted a Jesus like The Shack presents. A Jesus who has no real authority, who will just coddle you and kind of meet you where you're at. Now, is it true that Jesus meets us where we're at? Absolutely, yes. But as C.S. Lewis so powerfully puts it, he's not just a great teacher that gives us some helpful suggestions and tips for how to live and navigate life. No, he is Lord and he is God. 
Will you embrace it? Does your life, does your finances, your time, your energy, your talents, does it testify to the lordship, to the sovereign leading of your great shepherd? There is no middle ground. There's no sitting the fence. It's black and white. Jesus is either the Lord of your life or he's a liar, he's a lunatic. He's, like these leaders said, from Satan himself. He's a demon. Oh, church, may the testimony of our lives and the testimony of our lips be that this man was God in the flesh. He was very God of God. He, he was very man of man and he took our place, died in our stead for our sin. And it's his righteousness that clothes us that we can stand justified before God. Here in this story, I believe we hear lived out and, and described what Paul declares in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes in verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Church, this, this passage it calls us to hear the voice of our great shepherd and to embrace by faith who he is, God in flesh, our sovereign king who leads us in and out to pastures where we find security and safety that our soul desperately needs. In closing, I want to share with you the story of Peter Cameron Scott. Peter Cameron Scott lived from 1867 to 1896, and he was the one that founded the Africa Inland Mission. And so uh, on the steps of the Opera House, you see he was a, a man gifted in entertainment, in the arts and drama. And so Peter Cameron Scott, one day as he was heading up to the Opera House, was confronted, confronted in his thinking with two options. Will I use my time, my energy, my talents, will I use my voice to seek self-glory in the entertainment industry or will I use it to go and serve Christ? Well, you, as you can imagine, he chose to go and serve Christ. He went to Africa. But in those days, there weren't pills that you could take to confront malaria and keep it away. And so within a very short period of time, he contracted malaria and had to leave. But he wasn't to be, uh, to be thwarted. He got his brother John and they went back. And yet not long after he and his brother John went back, he buried his brother John. He died of malaria there in Africa and Peter was again forced to leave and return. And one day he, he found himself in Westminster Abbey and he was kneeling over the, the tombstone of David Livingston, the great African explorer. And he saw the verse the words of verse 16 written on the side of that tombstone. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And his heart took courage. And for a third time, Peter Cameron Scott went back to Africa. And this time, he brought the gospel to the innermost regions of Africa and established what is still today the Africa Inland Mission. I have other sheep that are not of this fold church as you hear the voice of your great shepherd what other sheep is God calling you to pursue there might be some right here in Pekin there may be some on an airplane there may be some to the ends of the earth how might God use you as you hear the voice of your shepherd 
A voice that doesn't speak mystically, but speaks right here clearly through God's word and says, I have other sheep. They will, notice the promise, they will hear my voice. Will you go? Will you follow wherever the shepherd would lead? Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, your word is so powerful. Our souls are so feeble and frail, and yet you promise us a shepherd, a shepherd who will protect us, a shepherd who provides for us, a shepherd who loves and cares for us deeply. Oh Lord, may we cling to him by faith. May we have ears to hear the voice of our shepherd. And Father, may we embrace your purpose that you have other sheep sheep all over the world that you desire to gather and you will gather them through the preaching of your son oh may we be your witnesses in that way however you see fit father i pray in jesus precious name amen as we close this morning uh just a reminder uh please stand with me by the way as we get ready to close with a benediction moms uh, don't forget there is a, a flower for you on the way out uh my prayer is that christ the great shepherd would be the strength for your soul uh, as you invest in the lives of children. Our benediction for this morning again comes from Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever, and all those who were bought by the precious blood of their great shepherd would say, Amen.